Hey, good morning. Will you guys stand up with us?
in the midst of our singing, we take our offering uh, each week and we give back God. We give back to God a portion of what He's given to us. And when we give, it's a spiritual act of worship. And I want you to uh, listen to Psalm 47 as we continue in worship. It says this, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. The sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of of the God of Abraham, for the king of the earth, kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. We serve a great God, a God who reigns, who is greatly exalted, who is without compare, awesome, a great king over all the earth. Don't forget how great our God is. We give to a God who is matchless and majestic, a God who promises in Philippians that he will meet our every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Father God, we worship you. We worship you with our voice, with our giving, with our lives. I pray that you would be honored and glorified, that you would take what is given and use it to advance your kingdom, use it to advance the gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ would continue to reach more and more and more. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. thankful for what you have provided for us in your son jesus christ and and thank you that you are unshakable immovable god that you are sovereign and holy lord we lift up your name this morning and we uh we we want to make ourselves less and you more and more and more today and uh, we can only do that through jesus and his power and power of your spirit so god help us do that this morning we need you and we love you amen Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning and uh, welcome to Crosspoint. My name is Dave and I'm one of the pastors here and we're thankful that you're with us. I wanted to share with you a little uh, family news. Earlier this morning at 12.04 a.m., Brian and Lizzie Blunier welcomed home a little baby girl. Wren Elizabeth is her name. And she was, uh, uh, let's see, 8 pounds, 4 ounces, 19 and a half inches long. And everybody's doing well. So, uh, be encouraging them, be praying for them, and uh, we'll put out a meal link probably later uh, t- this week, probably tomorrow or the next day, for you to be able to serve them and bless them in that way. And then also uh, Harlan Pearson, about a week and a half ago, had brain surgery, and he is in the house today in the living room, so it's good to see him. So make sure you uh, see him afterwards. If you have a Bible, get to Luke 12. If you don't have a Bible at home, then please get uh, one of the free ones at Guest Connections. Let that be our gift to you, and take that home. And we'll be looking at verses 49 through 53 in Luke 12 today. We're in week four of a series called Jesus Said What? Uh, if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John <clears throat> before, you've, you've for sure come across some sections of Scripture, some words written and read that caused you to pause, that might, have pa- that might have caused you to scratch your head and go, what? Now, what did Jesus mean with that? And did he mean what I think he means there? And when we come across verses in the Bible not just in the Gospels, but elsewhere, that cause us to ponder and scratch our head a little bit and think, that's a good thing. We shouldn't be afraid of those because God didn't intend for His Word to be confusing. He isn't trying to hide a secret meaning behind the words or or only reveal that secret meaning to the really smart ones or well-schooled ones. If you're a Christ follower, He's given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then leads us to truth revealed to us in Scripture. And today we land at some words of Jesus that seem to come out of left field. They seem to go against much of what we've heard from Jesus or about Jesus, and yet these words aren't in contradiction to the whole of Scripture. They help continue to give us a complete, a more complete picture of Christ. As with all Scripture, they give us a clearer picture of the nature and character of God because so often in our culture, Many people have a serious misconception about who Jesus is. Uh, 
they make Jesus out to be this kind of like cool religious guru who loved people and spreaded positive vibes and healed people and did some miracles and that's about it. The reality is, is the real Jesus was polarizing. You either loved him or you hated him. At one point, you had the Pharisees and the religious leaders plotting to kill him, but then at the same time, you had people worshiping him because he had healed them. Some who wanted to get rid of him and others who would do whatever it took to get to him. Some followed him wherever he went and others looked for ways to trick or deceive him. The fact of the matter is is that Jesus is still a very polarizing person. Long after the death and resurrection, Jesus remains a person who, whom some love him and others hate him. Some worship him and others are indifferent to him. Some follow his words and trust in his authority and others see his words as that of any person in history, kind of on the same level as any significant person in history. When you look at the Bible, though, after people encountered Jesus, no one remained indifferent to him. No one saw him as boring or just going around spreading some positive vibes. They either loved him and fell at his feet in worship or they hated him and wanted him dead. My hope, not just today, but with every Sunday, is that we grow to be more and more devoted to Jesus. For those of us who are, for those of you who are not following and trusting in Jesus yet, that you'd give him your life today, that you'd surrender your life to him today and follow him as Lord. And for those of us who personally know him as Savior and Lord, that we grow in our faith and that we continually fall at his feet as our king, as the majestic king clothed in majesty. If we're indifferent to the person of Jesus, then it's a sure sign we really don't know Jesus. And I pray we might know him better today. Jesus spoke these words uh, roughly three years after his first disciples began following him. So three years earlier, he says to them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they begin to follow him and live life with Jesus, learning from him, listening to him, becoming more and more like him. And what is fast approaching in the timeline of his life is the cross. The cross is looming. The arrest, the trial, uh, the mocking, the beating, the suffering, the pain, the death, all of that is right around the corner. And so we see the subject, we see that subject come up in these words. In one sense, Jesus is giving his disciples and therefore us a reality check a reality check of what might happen when we follow him as Lord and Savior, and that if it happens, we shouldn't be surprised nor caught off guard. Here's what he says, Luke 12, 49 through 53. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division." From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus says in verse 51 again, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. And we listen to that and go, "What? what? What does he mean by that? Did he just say that? He says something very similar as recorded in Matthew 10, 34 through 37. He says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, 
A daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we listen to that and go, now wait. If this were Christmas time, we'd be reminded that the angels announced Jesus' birth, according to Luke 2.14, with this glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those in whom his favor rests. We'd also be singing about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, right? Isaiah 9, 6 says this, For to us a a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the last name is given, that is is given, is, is Prince of Peace. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But then here in Luke 12 and Matthew 10, he's saying that he's not come to bring peace but division. What? So so what does he mean here? Does this contradict then everything else that has been told about him? Instead, what these verses in Luke 12 and Matthew 10 do is speak to the reality that the name of Jesus, when it's spoken... You have to think not just locally, but but globally, that the name of Jesus can be polarizing, which in turn can lead to relationship division horizontally with one another. So the word doesn't contradict itself. It completes itself. So verse 49 says again, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. In Scripture, fire is associated with many things. It's associated with God's presence or God's spirit. Here, more than likely, it's associated with divine judgment. God's fire both purifies, purifies and cleanses. John MacArthur says this regarding this verse. Uh, fire consumes what is combustible and does not consume what is non-combustible. It purifies the non-combustible and it destroys the combustible. And so the coming of Jesus is a fire. It's a fire cast to the earth to those who believe it purifies. To those who reject, it consumes. And so Jesus is saying, look, I've come as fire. John the Baptist, who, uh, the, the one who prepared the way for Jesus and told the people that the Messiah is coming, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world and prepares a way for the coming Messiah, he said this as recorded in Matthew three eleven through uh, 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, there's this picture that those who receive Jesus will be gathered in, will be purified, will be brought near. But for those who have rejected Jesus, they'll be judged with fire. Kindling is used to start a fire, and so the kindling he refers to there is the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus himself was judged by the Father. MacArthur says his death, which is a fire of judgment that God brings on him, God literally consumes him in wrath, the just for the unjust, you and me. And he's punished for our sins. He says, Jesus says, how I wish it were already kindled. He wishes it were over, but it isn't yet. The cross is still looming, and that's where he goes and in verse 50, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. This baptism that he refers to is not the baptism of water that believers uh, do after 
their conversion and where they go public with her faith and celebrate. This is different. The baptism here he was referring to is his coming crucifixion. He refers to the baptism elsewhere, refers to it as that in uh, Mark 10, 38. Jesus was not just dreading the physical pain of the cross, but the pain of being separated from his Father in that moment. So that when all the sin had been laid upon him, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, Jesus prayed on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father's wrath toward sin was being poured out on his Son. Jesus says in verse 50 that he's under constraint until it is completed. He is distressed, to say the least. The the thought here is that the cross is dominating his thoughts. John 12, 27 records Jesus saying this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. The cross is what's on his mind. It's what's on his heart because this is why he's come. This is the mission that he has been sent for. He is the Messiah, the Savior of our souls, and he was born of a virgin. And as he's giving these words, he's in the midst of living a perfect, sinless life. And soon, right around the corner, he will undergo a baptism of death. He will die on a cross and then rise again on the third day. Obedience to the Father and love for people is what drove him to the cross. In our world... Uh, the first responder is the one who goes toward the mess and toward the tragedy. They run in when everyone else is running out, right? Uh, They're the ones who go into the house when the house is burning down. And such is the case with our Savior. He is the one who died while we were still sinners. He was the one who laid down his life for us, knowing that one day for all of us, judgment will come, that the purifying fire will come, and for those who are in Christ, we'll be saved Jesus is the hero, the Savior, the one who died in our place, and he invites us to trust in his death and his resurrection for the salvation of our souls. Are you personally trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting that the cross, in that moment, he died for you? His blood was poured out for you. His body was broken for you, that your sin was covered through the cross. Are you trusting that by his wounds that you are healed. Timothy Keller writes this, Jesus did not come to, to earth the first time to bring justice, but to bear it. He came not with a sword in his hands, but with nails through his hands. Christian teaching for centuries has been this, Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment our sins deserve, so that someday he will return to earth to end evil without destroying us all. Near the end of his life, Jesus said that, he, that we should continually remember his death through the symbol of communion. And so we're going to pause here in the midst of the message to take communion, to remember the death, remember the sacrifice, remember the moment when Jesus took the full weight of our sin and said, it is finished. The debt's been paid in full. It's been satisfied in full. That if you're in Christ, your sin has been forgiven and as well as the power of sin has been broken in your life. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was deeply distressed and constrained, if you will, over the upcoming cross. He prayed, not my will, but your will, Father. The Son obeyed the Father so that we might find life and find salvation. Communion is not for everyone. The Bible says only believers who have received God's gift of salvation should take communion. So if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, then simply pass the 
trays on down the row. The ushers will uh, come up now and begin distributing the trays. And as the trays are passed, make sure you get both cups, the top and the bottom, because one has the bread and one has the juice. And use this time to, to pray, to remember, uh, to confess, to thank God for the sacrifice of the cross, to remember the cross this morning as we gather as a church family. We'll then eat the bread and drink the juice together as a church family afterwards. First Peter 2, starting in 22, says this, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Jesus, thank you that you entrusted yourself to the Father who judges justly. Thank you that you are the shepherd, you are the overseer of our souls, and I thank you for the way that you've brought us back to you, that you have pursued us with your love, you pursued us with the gospel, you pursued us when you laid down your life for us and you took it back up on the third day, and I thank you that you brought us near and that we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We love you. We commit ourselves to you. We, we just thank you continually for the grace that you lavish us with as your children. And thank you for the reminder of the cross. Thank you for the reminder of communion to remember the sacrifice, remember the, the love that you poured out for us through the cross. Help us to live this week in daily awareness of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus said again in verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Jesus is facing the sober reality of the cross and then this leads him to share a sobering reality with his own disciples Verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus was then and continues to be to this day a divisive figure, not because of his character, not because he was a rude jerk or something like that, but because of the claims he made, such as Jesus saying this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a huge statement. So Jesus is claiming, if you want to get to God, I'm the only way. Jesus is radically inclusive. 
All are welcome to repent and believe in the gospel and, and follow Jesus and trust in Jesus, and yet the path to enter the kingdom of God to find salvation is through one way, Jesus. In a world, our, our world values vague, general spirituality. I'm a spiritual person. We, we kind of value that, that phrase or that thought. But in the, in the midst of that kind of culture to say that the only way to God is through Jesus, is cl- that, that claim will bring division. Not everyone will agree with that. There are no, there's no middle ground with Jesus. You're either in or you're out. You're either following him or rejecting him. You were either weeping at the cross or you were shouting crucify him. One commentary said this, the gospel that brings deep inner peace to those who, whose hope is in Christ divides all people of the world into two realms, even within one's own family, based on their reception of the gospel message. So some receive and some reject. I pray that if you're rejecting today, that you would receive his love in your life today. Jesus made some staggering claims. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Matthew 10, 37, which I read earlier, he said this, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is putting himself at the very center of our faith. Love and obey me, Jesus is saying, not just this general love God, but love me. There and elsewhere, he continues to say, I am God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, I only do the Father's will because I and the Father are one. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of Christ, so or exact representation, rep, representation of God. So if I get up this next week on the stage and said, listen, you need to love and obey me more than anyone else. You need to be committed to me more than anyone else. And if you're not, then you're not worthy of me If I get up and say that, then please leave quickly because toga, I'm probably going to wear a toga and we're going to start passing out Kool-Aid or something like that. Or better yet, you stay and the elders can like drag me out by my heels out that exit door right there. All right? It would sound ridiculous for me to say that up here. But that's exactly what Jesus said. John the Baptist, who is described as the greatest prophet to have ever lived, he said about Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. John wasn't out to make a name for himself. He was out to make much of the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus is different. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Then continuing in in, uh, 52. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The family is the foundation of which we come from, really. This is where our loyalties lie. The saying is that blood is thicker than water because for the most part, um, families stand back to back to one another. And yet because of that, it can lead us to be, to be willing to forsake our walk with the Lord because we don't want to upset our family. And some of you get this firsthand. The family was disappointed when you left that church, when you left that denomination. Or you walk into a family gathering and you know that so-and-so is going to be really antagonistic to you right off the bat. Or they're fine to talk with you up until you talk about how God's at work in your life and then they just don't want to hear it anymore. 
Jesus is clear here that following him might lead to division among relationships, even among family members, which is the most intimate of relationships. It's possible that following Jesus will lead to family members becoming enemies. Sometimes those closest to us uh, are, might be the ones who persecute or hurt us the most by what they say or do in response to our desire to make Jesus number one in our life. They may no longer want anything to do with us if we claim that we're following and trusting in Christ. And again, some of you know this firsthand. You, you have lived this, or maybe you're currently living this out right now. As I thought about these verses, uh, they were this huge reminder to me of what believers in Christ experience globally. Yes, we can experience the reality of this in our lives, uh, but quite frankly, our brothers and sisters uh, around this globe face it to a greater degree than you and I ever will in America. And so as we read our Bibles, we must remember that Christianity didn't start with America. I know you know that, but I think sometimes we forget that. Or the vast majority of Christians globally don't live in America. It's not America, all right? We, we love America. It didn't start with America, all right? So I asked one of our missionaries that, that we support and who serves in East Asia, and I can't say their names or their location because of the nature of live streaming podcast and, uh, and the nature of where they live and the persecution that they could potentially face. But I emailed them to, to have them share their perspective on these verses, especially living in a culture where uh, very few Christians live and where Christianity is really antagonistic to faith and potentially uh, persecuting. So he writes this. I've always thought this passage is interesting and challenging, but it's also not an oddity or the only place that something like this is taught by Jesus, lived out by him or lived out by the, by the disciples in the early church. Division will come because of Jesus and his message in different times and in different ways, but it will come. Of course, we don't seek this kind of division in and of itself, but there is a point that seeking peace and unity would come at the cost of the very gospel about Jesus that we believe and has saved us. As for how this is played out here in their culture, he writes this, The Lord has graciously given us the privilege of journeying, journeying closely with a handful of Muslim background believers. Each of them are at various levels wrestling with the topic that this scripture raises, particularly in their relationships with their parents and extended family. You see a Muslim who comes to trust Jesus for their salvation and is open about this with their family is often seen by their families as, as having turned their back on their very heritage. Islam is not just a faith, but something you're born into, a way of life, the very foundation of one's culture and life and family. So he gives us a current example. Our friend Molly, a single 33-year-old, is in the throes of this right now. Molly was a Muslim by birth, but believed in Christ about six years ago due initially to a spiritual dream. In the last year, Molly has been growing a lot in her faith, reading her Bible and praying tenaciously. She's also been able to serve in her, following, in her fellowship among non-Muslims through leading a Bible study. Her parents, who live with her, are Muslim and have known about Molly's faith in Christ for at least a few years, but largely keep quiet about it. Until recently, they've been making sure that the rest of the family didn't find out about it, which would bring great shame upon them. However, when Molly told them about a, a month ago that she'd like to get more training to serve the Lord, they couldn't hold themselves back any longer. They became very angry with her and, and have even threatened to disown her, telling her that they would never support her doing a Christian ministry. 
Their home has been a very stressful and tense environment these past few weeks. We've been blessed to be able to journey with her in this and encourage her con- to continue trust, trusting in the Lord and also in loving and honoring her parents. At the same time, we've reminded her through looking at Mark 10, 28-31 that her first loyalty should ultimately be to the Lord, but that there may come a time when staying true to the Lord may have negative consequences in her relationships with her parents. Hopefully it won't come to that, but it may. He continues, Actually, I think this is a very relevant topic for our brothers and sisters in America right now. I don't think it's overdramatic to say that America is generally becoming more anti-Jesus. As it goes in many circles in the States right now, it's okay to believe anything you want, but belief in Jesus as the only way is seen as intolerant, bigoted, and maybe even hateful. As a bit of a side note, This may lead some to start thinking in terms of enemies and us versus them. But he writes, I don't think that's actually helpful. As Christians, we don't have enemies in the flesh, not even those who directly persecute us for our faith. We're called to love people and seek their best by respectfully and lovingly living out and speaking out the gospel. Terrific examples are found in the stories of believing martyrs who went to their death loving their captors and forgiving them even as they died by their own hands. Our enemies are the sinful desires within us that crave acceptance from man at any cost and anything else within us that pulls us away from Christ. Our enemies are also the powers of darkness in this world that push forward these kinds of thoughts among society. He finishes with this. Where does this lead us as believers? Hopefully not to worry or despair, for that kind of response would deny the truth that we hold so dear, the old, old story of Jesus and his glory that has set us free. Jesus is the ultimate victor. The section of Scripture ought to lead us to our knees in a deeper dependency on Christ and also to a greater understanding of the assurance we have in Christ as we eagerly await a perfect kingdom that will last forever. If you think about it this week, Crosspoint, you should pray for Molly. You should, she's a sister in the Lord, and she's facing something that, uh, again, that many of us just won't face in our lifetime. So pray for her. I also appreciate that uh, what he wrote as a reminder that these words of Jesus are not to allude to an us versus them mentality. Or even if we have enemies in our own families, when it comes to faith in Christ, uh, we must remember that Jesus calls us to love for and pray for our enemies. So these words of Jesus are not a license to be a jerk It's not a license to be pious or contentious or unloving or divisive. Oh, I love division. Let's go. It's not a license for that. Jesus himself responded in this way in the midst of the cross. 1 Peter 2.23, I read it earlier. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So don't lose sight of that Christ-reflecting response when insults may come your way. Far and away, in these verses, we see that Jesus is demanding to be first in our lives. I love that the next two verses in Matthew 10 that I didn't get to, 38 and 39, say this. Right after he's talked about the relational tension and the conflict, he says this, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. We looked at those words of Jesus a couple weeks ago. The idea behind them is the same as this, as, as I came to bring division and not peace. It is Jesus asking us point blank, where does our, 
our loyalty land? Who has the affections of our heart? Where's the focus of our mind? The essence of Christianity is loyalty to Jesus Christ, a loyalty that takes precedence over every other relationship. Loyalty above any earthly relationship, even those closest to us. To place any other relationship, even good ones, above God is a form of idolatry. So Jesus is asking us this question, who do we love first and foremost? By placing Jesus first in my life, to love him more than my wife, as, as an example, is not a knock that I really don't love Heather. In fact, it's a sign that I really do. She wants me to love Jesus first. It goes well for her when I love Jesus first. Because if I love Jesus first, then you know who isn't first? This guy, right? And as a result, if my aim is to be devoted to Jesus more than myself, to be loyal to him above all else, then that means he's got a humble and contrite spirit to work with. He's got a heart that's seeking to be changed and transformed by him. So let me ask you a question. Just in the day of the day, is Jesus first in our life? Is he first in your life? Is, our, is your love and devotion and loyalty toward him far superior to anything or anyone else? Does it show up in how you read the word or how you pray to him throughout the day or how you give to him first of your money or how you show and tell of the gospel or how you live life in the family of God or how you serve, how you lay down your life for a friend? Specifically, when it comes to your immediate and extended family, do you love Jesus more than your own family? Is your family's approval or disapproval holding you back from following Jesus somehow? And this follows a lot of people long into adulthood. I mean, you're like in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and you've still got this uh, patriarch-matriarch type of relationship, and, uh, uh, an older generation, and you're still living for their approval. And, and in some way, it's holding you back from actually following and trusting in Jesus. Parents, are you teaching your children to obey Jesus more than you? Are you pointing them to you or to Jesus ultimately? Because ultimately, all that parent-child relationship is, it's an example of them when they leave their home. They, so they learn to obey mom and dad. They learn to honor mom and dad so that when they leave your home, they learn to obey and honor mom and dad. Um, learn to obey God. Is that right? Okay, so last week I mixed, mixed something up too. I said love money and don't love God, I think. So, but nobody called it out. So again, you could drag me out by my heels, but my wife called it out. I have no idea what I just said, but hopefully you get the, get the idea, okay? If Jesus calls your child to uh, live in another part of the country, um, to move away to be a missionary, are you going to try to trump that as a mom, as a dad? No, you can't leave the family. No, leave the family. Obey God. This is what it takes as a mom and dad to surrender them to the Lord. You're not the ultimate authority in their life. God is. You're just a, a picture of that for 18, however many years. Now, students, don't misinterpret these, these verses. Maybe you're thinking, yes, these are the words of Jesus that I have been looking for for all my life. Like Jesus said to bring division, let's go, baby. I mean, you might have a personality in your home like that. <clears throat> we kind of do. And um, uh, it's not a license for that. You're still called to honor mom and dad. 
these verses don't trump God's verses to honor mom and dad. Instead, these verses, students, are asking you, at the age you are, is Jesus first in your life? Is he of utmost importance to you? Are you loyal to him above any other relationship, including your friend circle? Speaking of friend circle, if, is it a friend circle? Is it a friend, their approval or disapproval that's actually keeping you from obeying and following Jesus? Because frankly, for a student, it's not always family. It's the friend circle that becomes far more important than it needs to be. Finally, a word of encouragement and hope to you. If you're in the midst of this very situation of relationship and family conflict that Jesus is speaking of here, I want to read to you some verses from 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Again, just keeping in light the, the family and relationship division. It says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Uh, right before his death, knowing that he would leave his disciples, but in his place the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus told this to his disciples, and we'll finish with this verse, John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. So as we follow Jesus, it may very well lead to division and conflict. It may lead to our hearts being tempted to be troubled or to be afraid. But this is such a sweet and encouraging promise from Jesus that even in light of that, we have peace. Peace I leave with you, he says. My, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. We have peace because the Holy Spirit is with us, because the presence of God has not left us. And that no matter what happens with our earthly family, we have a spiritual family that we've been adopted into because of Christ that is present here on this earth and present long into eternity. Father God, I thank you for that reality. <clears throat> I pray that you would uh, help us to apply the word in our own hearts and, and to be able to uh, have hearts and eyes and ears that are open and receptive to the Holy Spirit's work in our life, not only this morning, but in the days to come. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you'd remind us of your grace. I pray that you would, uh, tomorrow morning and the day after that and, and later tonight, I pray that you would remind us to put you first, to continue to set you apart as Lord. I pray that where we're tempted to place ourselves up as Lord or place anyone else up as Lord, I pray that we would uh, I pray that we would set aside those idols and that we would place you up as Lord. I thank you for your love, I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'd encourage you as you uh, walk out. Um, Hopefully this mic lasts for the next two minutes. But uh, as you walk out, see somebody you know, say, how can I pray for you this week? And then just pray for them right, right there. Weird, but it's really not w biblically, okay? Just, hey, can I pray for you right now? Can I, God, would you give wisdom? 
Would you give them a great week? Would you help them draw their hearts close to you and just pray for one another, the body caring for one another this week? VBS Central is in the back. Donate, uh, volunteer, sign up back there. I'm signed up to be an elementary age um, crew leader. I've already recruited a specific group of boys that I want that have lots of energy, and I can't wait to be with them for five nights in a row. So make sure, no, no that sounded like, a, sound, sound like sarcasm. It really wasn't. Maybe like 10%. Um, but sign up in the back. Uh, great opportunity for the body to join together to be on mission to reach this community. So God bless. Have a great week.